a pleasant, pleasant morning is it indeed that we have been granted the incredible honor to gather as we have today. You know, worship as it's set forth in the Bible is not only significant, but it's eternally so, and you and I have the opportunity as an anchor in life to assemble as we are and do so in a way that is in spirit and in truth offering our worship unto the God of heaven. It's so good that we're all here today, and thankful are we for every person that's represented. I would like to take just a brief moment at the outset to express an especial word of appreciation to those who invested your Saturday morning to come yesterday to the Tennessee Bible College and be a part of the activities that, that took place there. It was a very thrilling and enthralling day, and certainly a host of you were there, and my family and I would wish to share our appreciation especially for your encouragement, for your participation, and hopefully for the benefit we all receive from the activities that took place then. The lesson this morning is one that, as you can already tell, has to do with the fruits of frustration. I thought that it might be a very appropriate matter to give some thought to a lesson by that construction, and I hope for the next few moments we all will be reminded of some of the things that are set before us in the Word of God touching what can be the unfortunate fruits of frustration. By way of introduction, isn't it so, and we would not disagree, I'm sure, a one of us. It is seemingly the case that on a frequent basis, matters take place around us. Being prompted by the choices and the decisions of others, that can be very much different than what we would prefer that they would choose. And that can lead to frustration in you and in me, and it can sometimes lead to far more than just frustration. As we will learn this morning, that frustration can directly produce a number of particular fruits. The consequences can be very serious, and so I hope that this lesson will be a motivation for each of us to never allow culture and the frustration that it might cause to lead us into places that we will greatly regret. Let's look at these one by one. As we do that, we'll start like this. One of the things that frustration can so quickly lead in you and me is to begin to think wrongly. And I say that this way, that that frustration can boil within you and I to the point where we begin to see things through a different lens and light and the thoughts that would be prompted by it would not be good. As you can see in that opening consideration, aren't we reminded in Philippians 4, 8, we are told there what should be the critical idea and the reality of our thoughts. Although it is the closing part of that phrase, remember it reads something like, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. What things? The six things were just listed previously in that same verse. Paul admonished the Philippians in light of their circumstances, and yea, always to think on things that are true, things that are honest, things that are lovely, things that are pure, things that are of good report. Would you pause for a moment and ponder if one's thoughts were focused upon that? And notice how different that is in light of what frustration can cause us to think about to dwell on what's ugly and hurtful and what's selfish. Paul said, don't think about that. Don't let that be your primary issue upon which you meditate and dwell. As often as the Word of God encourages it of us, 
meditate on the Word of God day and night. Psalm chapter 1, verse 3. Now, the consideration of that kind of meditation leads me to the next observation on that slide. And this one is in serious indeed. As a man thinketh in his heart, the writer of Proverbs would say, so is he, Proverbs 23, 7. And thus, if we allow ourselves to dwell for any length of time upon that which is selfish or ugly or in some way harmful or hurtful or opposite the Word of God, then we will become that in a fairly short amount of time. Isn't it easy to see then that frustration can begin to lead our thoughts to dwell far too long into places that are not healthy and to places that are not wholesome? A couple of examples might well be in order. I've listed for your consideration the New Testament character known as Demas. We each well remember that Demas is mentioned a number of times in the New Testament, but may we never lose sight of the movement through his life. Isn't it so that we are encouraged in the Bible to be those who move upward in maturity, upward in faithfulness? How did Demas move? When we encounter Demas in Philemon chapter 1, you notice there he was a fellow laborer with Paul, working shoulder to shoulder and side by side with the great apostle himself. When he's mentioned in the book of Colossians, one more time highlighted as a servant to the God of heaven. By the time we reach 2 Timothy 4, verses 10 and following, something very different is said about Demas. There we're reminded Demas has loved this present world. He has forsaken me. The implication is, in light of the context in which that occurs, remember, Paul had been in prison. Maybe Demas had seen that and said, this Christianity business just isn't worth it. This person whom I have trusted and followed, look where, where, where it has gotten Paul. Look where it got Philemon. Look where it got some of the others that were well-known people of the day. Maybe the frustration was a part of what led Demas to love this present world too much. You and I must be cautious. May we never, ever love this present world too much. And just as Gary led us in singing a little bit earlier today, this world is not my home. We must believe it. The second point on that slide is this. Not only can frustration lead us to wrong thinking, it can lead us to a completely wrong perspective. Every one of us have a perspective through which we look at the circumstances surround us in life. In essence, it's a lens that allows us the perspective that we have on the situations in which we are. May I suggest that frustration can, if we allow it to do so, to bring us to a perspective that would not be happy and consistent to God. Let's develop it like this. The God of heaven declares absolutely His sufficiency for us in this life. None of us should ever be able to say, God, I cannot do it. No matter what the temptation, we can do it. We can overcome it. And to say otherwise is to besnirch the almightiness of God, because He said we can. In fact, it's an insult to Him for us to claim that He's our God, and all the while we say, God, I can't. Look at some of these verses with me, if you would. 
you'll notice in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 5, our sufficiency is of God. Now, Paul said that plainly and absolutely. To claim anything otherwise is thus a lie. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the inspired apostle would beautifully say, there's been no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Other people have felt the same. They've experienced the same. In fact, they've likely experienced much worse. If they can make it, you can too. God's faithful. He will never, ever allow anybody to face any temptation beyond their capacity to overcome it. That capacity, of course, being found in the Word of God. Is it any wonder in light of those things that sometimes this frustration can cause us to begin to rely too much on ourselves? God isn't handling this as quickly as He ought to. He isn't dealing with this as immediately as I need Him to deal with it. And thus, we begin to think that we have a better solution. And we have a better timetable and we have a better method of approach. That's bound to lead us to nowhere good. Isn't it true in Jeremiah 10, 23, the way of man's not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. I know well frustration can lead us to think, I can handle this and I do have a way to deal with it. No, you don't. None of us do. God's way is always the best. His way is always the way that's right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? To ask that question of Genesis 18.25. You'll notice perhaps an example of this one. Can you think of any individuals in the Bible who, under the duress and the frustration that surrounded them, that they began to have a perspective that was not healthy and quite frankly led to problems? somewhat later for them. To my mind came the people of Numbers chapter 13. You recall the situation. The children of Israel had been led out of Egyptian bondage and they had traveled for two years. And I realize that some of that time they complained. Sadly enough, they did that quite often. But they came to the southern boundary of the promised land. They came to the place that God had brought them to and what happened? Some spies were sent out, and ten of them came back and said, It is indeed as great as we have heard it was. But the people there are big. The cities have walls, and we can't take it. Do you hear their perspective? The very God that parted the Red Sea for them, and the very God that had to that point fed them freely, and the very God who at that point had brought plagues on these enemies to theirs, now these people were suddenly quickly ready to turn their back on the God of heaven and said, we cannot take it. We're a bunch of cowards. God said, because you didn't believe in me, you're going to wander 38 more years in this wilderness till every one of you are dead. You're not going to see the land. Your spies may have seen it, and they may have told you about it. You're never going to set foot in it, the rest of you, except Joshua and Caleb. May we note their perspective had been changed. You and I can have the same thing happen to us, to which we begin to see problems far greater than what they really are, because we don't rely upon God's strength. Every problem is going to seem big when you and I rely on our own strength, because we aren't God. 
We're not almighty like He is. We don't have the wisdom He does. His understanding is infinite in the words of Psalm 147, verse 5. What about problem number three? What else might frustration bring our way? It can bring a wrong spirit. It can bring an attitude whereby we bring forth fruit that is not good. Isn't it true? We know very well the kind of fruit that the God of heaven through the Spirit would encourage us to bear. As those who are given to the things of God, we're urged, in fact, demanded that the fruits of the Spirit should be that which we bear. You can probably list them with me based on the text of Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Isn't it true that Paul would say, Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, the nine fruits of the Spirit. Isn't it true that frustration, what we see about us, wages war against every one of them? Frustration doesn't tend to encourage love. Frustration doesn't intend to encourage patience and perseverance. Frustration doesn't intend to encourage goodness and meekness and self-control. Frustration, you see, can easily wage war against every one of them. And we begin to bring forth the things mentioned in the previous three verses, verses 19 to 21. You remember what's there, things like sedition, variance, unthankfulness, strife. Frustration, you see, can bring forth those kinds of things. Did you notice the way that that list ends, though, in verse 21? These things won't lead you to heaven. These things will cause you to lose your soul. We've got to be mindful, dear brethren, of the circumstances concerning what frustration can bring, and may we be strong enough to fight against it. I've asked you to notice a host of verses as you close that third point. Things that remind us, again, of the kind of spirit that can so easily develop. But let's look at number four. What else can frustration bring our way? Wrong words. Words, you see, which would not be fitting and consistent for the life of a Christian. We're all well aware of the fact that the God of heaven demands that our speech be closely guarded. Set a watch on my mouth, the psalmist cried in Psalm 141, verse 3. A watch on the mouth would be a particular consideration of ensuring that with thought and care we speak the way that we should. Jesus would say in Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, that we're going to have to give account in the day of judgment for every idle word we've spoken. That's a tall order, isn't it? Isn't that a reminder of the care with which we should use the language that we use? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, Paul there commented so directly about words that had the kind of corruptness to them that would lead him to say this, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Now that was in the midst of the first century. The church at Ephesus was reminded, ensure that you see your language that you choose is edifying language. It's language that's filled with grace. Is that true for you and me? 
tomorrow on Monday, wherever you and I may be. It's rather easy when we're not in the confines of a place like this, surrounded by people who, in fact, love the Lord. When we're somewhere else and the people there are not as given to love for the Lord, and there may be encouragement of and temptation to speak many things which would not be right. You see, the kind of consideration is that frustration can lead us in temper or otherwise to say things which would be hurtful and which, quite frankly, could be very damaging to our reputation, to the reputation of the Lord, and to the stance of His kingdom. Look at a few of these examples, if you would. Do you recall Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4? Here in early, in the dawn of time, you and I well recall that there they brought of the things accessible to them, to the, to the God of heaven. God was well pleased with what Abel offered. He did not have respect for what Cain offered. Much might be stated about the great lessons in that for us today in light of what we offer to God in worship. But maybe for the point at hand, wasn't it true that Cain became frustrated? You liked what he brought, why not me? Do you notice verse 6? God told him, seeing life at the door, Cain, you're about to do something, you need to think twice. Sin's lying at the door. You need in calmness to appreciate what God, what I have commanded of you, and to do differently. You and I often find ourselves in that situation. Frustration can bring us in heightened emotion to respond. We ought to pause enough with clarity of mind to think, is this action wise? Is they, are these words wise? Maybe it's so in light of these first four points that the fruits of frustration can surely work against us notably. What about number five? Wrong actions. I'm sure we expected an emphasis upon this at some point. In frustration, or perhaps in an element of what I might even call despair, I have been led to a point where I've got to do something. The something you and I do, motivated by thinking like that, more often than not, will be wrong. More often than not, will be hurtful. And it may well bring a circumstance out of which we can never easily come. Look at some of these developments and some of these considerations. God commands very strongly that what is right is always to be done. Would you and I take at least a long enough period of time to think of it this way? It is never, ever right to do what's wrong. It is never, ever wrong to do what's right. Now, I realize the world will have a different appreciation on both of those statements. First of all, what the world considers right mostly, most of the time, will not be. And what the world considers wrong, again, often will not be wrong, actually. From the perspective of the Word of God, it'll never be wrong to do what's right. And it'll never be right to do what's wrong. You'll note at the top of that slide that we have this incredible statement made to us on the closing paragraph of the Bible in Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. If you want to go to heaven, if I want to go to heaven, the way to get there is obey His commandments. 
May we never allow the frustration due possibly to the events of the world and that which surrounds us to lead us to not do what He says. Furthermore, on that same point in the slide, could I bring to our attention the example of Moses? You and I so often, no doubt, think with interest to the life of Moses. Here was a man who had been brought up in royalty. He'd been brought up as the daughter of the Pharaoh. I'm sorry, brought up as the son of the daughter of the Pharaoh. And in so doing, he had access to the riches and the finery that the palace had to offer. But yet, instilled within him was a conviction about his people, the people of God, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And the time came, he was on the back skirts of Midian tending, you see, the flocks. A bush was on fire, but it wasn't consumed. God told him through that bush, You go and bring my people out of Egypt. You and I know what he had to put up with. A people who complained a lot. A people who quite often were ready to kill him because their physical needs and their mind were not being met. Moses, were thirsty. You brought us out of Egypt to die of thirst in the wilderness? You brought us out of Egypt to die of hunger because we're hungry? They even had the nerve to say, Moses, we want some flesh to eat. We're tired of this manna. Can you imagine telling God, we're not satisfied with the food you've given us? More than once, they were ready to stone Moses. Moses appealed to God, God, they're ready to take my life. On one occasion in Numbers chapter 20, they were thirsty and they were complaining. God told Moses, I want you to bring water out of the rock for them. He did, but he did something more. He took the credit to himself. God said, Moses, you're not going to enter the land because of that. You'll lead them to it, but you won't be allowed to enter it. Later on, when Moses reflected on that, he said, because of your insistence. Now, that was no excuse. But due to the frustration that he felt due to their complaining and their constant whining, that was at least a factor that led Moses to do what he did. That can happen to us if it can happen to Moses because he was the meekest man that ever lived on the earth, according to Numbers 12, verse 3. How are you and I doing at this? Another example would be Saul I've listed for you in 1 Samuel 18. He was jealous of what they were saying about David. And it led him to some wrong actions trying to kill David. Point number six is this. All these wrong things so far, we can understand how they can be prompted by the circumstances of frustration. What about a wrong example? That is to say, an absolute circumstance in which due to frustration we behave in such a way that we have placed ourselves so that others have witnessed what we've done and that has served for them an incredibly bad example. This is especially serious in light of our children, may I suggest. When those young adoring eyes look up to you and I and see in us those who they honor and respect so much and we behave out of frustration in a way 
that leaves an indelible imprint they'll never forget. Daddy did it. Mama did it. Grandpa did it. And so when they arrive at circumstances of frustration in life, they've immediately got an excuse. If Daddy did it, why not me? For that reason, you and I must be incredibly cautious. May you and I as fathers and mothers and others of influence, may we never justify disobedience to God and so our children can say, Dad disobeyed and he justified it. And so why not me? They may never say it in those words, of course, but the idea is clear enough. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, I've listed for you some additional verses of consideration. 1 Timothy 4 verse 12 admonishes of us. You and I, as those devoted to the God of heaven, are to be an example of these things. Timothy, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, in purity. Those are the kinds of things in which we are to be examples. And yet frustration again wages war against all of them. You and I should never want to be an example of those kinds of things we mentioned earlier. An example of sedition. An example of strife. An example of variance. An example of harm and great distancing concerning the things of God's people. As you and I close that slide, there are several warnings in the Word of God to these ideas surrounding a wrong example. Maybe none is any higher than 1 Samuel chapter 2. You and I well recall there that a statement is made that these people who ought to have known better and were the actual servants at the tabernacle caused other people to abhor service to God. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Here were priests who ought to have been encouraging godliness, who ought to have been encouraging faithfulness, and other people hated serving God because of the example they saw in them. If that's what it means to serve God, I want no part of it. If you and I live like that and drive somebody from the God that loves them, we're going to answer in judgment for that. That's just the way it is. What about point number seven? As we come to the last slide of our lesson today, only two more. Frustration can well bring us to a position of a wrong emphasis. I chose this one in this seventh position because in some way of the basis of the ones that preceded it, but also the observation of a bit of summary connected to it. Every one of us know that the emphasis in life for those directed to God must be the kingdom of the Lord. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. If our focus, if frustration leads us to focus on something else, we are sure to make some mistakes. And those mistakes will manifest themselves in words or in actions or in emphasis. And so emphasis is the one that now is the one before us. God instructs us that which is important. You and I realize whatever takes place upon this life and on this earth cannot take priority number one. I realize fully well that over the last couple of years especially, there has been so much emphasis placed on COVID-19 
and what seemingly has gone with it. A world, you see, wherein it seems as if that's all we've heard. And those in positions of power have used it to make many statements of emphasis and even declaration. You've got a social distance. You can't be closer than six feet. You can't be any nearer to someone than this or that. And what's more, you've got to close the church services. You can't even meet together. You and I know that many individuals around the land have done this. As wrong as it was, they did it because the government told them to do it. Because the government gave the impression we're doing it because we love your health. We want you to be healthy. Fact is, we've got to obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 Isn't it true that almost anything can be claimed to have something to do with your health? If we allow the government this kind of consideration now, in which the emphasis has been taken to, of all things most important, it's responding as the government would have it to be done in light of this supposed deadly threat. The government can call anything a deadly threat. The flu, other kinds of disease, all of it could be called a deadly threat. So are we going to allow the government, even in those situations you can't meet for church services, what the government has been given in terms of that kind of consideration now has taken emphasis completely away from heaven. I've got to make sure my health is right here. That gives the impression that I really couldn't care less about being ready for there. I've got to make sure I'm healthy here. If we love our life here that much, we're never going to see heaven. The Word of God helps us see, you see, their emphasis. It cannot be above all else an appreciation of what's here because the world is always under the consideration of the motivation of the devil going to war against what's ultimately right. Out of this world I'm unable to take things of silver and gold that I make. All that I treasure and all that I keep I must leave behind when I fall asleep. I often wonder what I shall own in that other world where I go alone. What shall they hear and what shall they see in the soul that answers the call for me? Shall the great judge come in when my task is through, my spirit for gaining great riches too? Or at the last shall it be mine to find? All that I've worked for, I've left behind. If we're only working for what's here, nothing's going to be waiting there for us. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 6, 19, lay up treasures there? You say, I'm laying them up and so too should all of us be so that they're waiting for us. We'll go there to receive them. If they're laid up here, we're not going to be taking anything there. One final one, what about our prayers? When the time comes that we've allowed frustration to reach far beyond what it should, our prayers will be hindered because our focus is here and self and the greatness of these enemies that we appear to be facing. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, again, one could mention the example of Elijah. One could mention the example of Moses. These are individuals, you see, who you and I notice well were such that they remind us that our prayers are spoken of in words like this. James 5, verse 16, "...the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much." 
May I suggest that when the moments come, that frustration has appeared daunting and overwhelming. That's the very time that prayer perhaps seems quite less effective. Because I'm thinking about me, what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with this? When all the while, we are taught in the Word of God that God is the one who, through the answer to the prayers that we offer, we're promised in 1 Peter 3 verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. Today, we've looked at eight consequences, as destructive and as deadly and as hurtful as they are, connected to what frustration can bring. We understand full well we're all surrounded by frustration. The idea thus in conclusion must be this, we must be on guard sufficiently to never allow the matters that take place around us to deter us from faithfulness, to bring us to a point of making decisions prompted by that frustration, to act in a way that's hurtful and harmful to ourselves and no doubt many others that love us and others whom we may influence for good. It takes us back to the lesson text that was read in our hearing earlier. Aren't you encouraged when you hear Paul writing to the Galatians say, in Galatians 6, verse number 9, the encouragement to let us not faint, of course. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. May we never be weary. Don't get tired. Don't ever give up. Don't ever allow consistency in faith to be a matter you're willing to abandon due to frustration or otherwise. Because after all, heaven will surely be worth it all. Gary led us in that song right before the sermon. Quite appropriately chosen, don't you think? At this point, let's offer an invitation. We know that the God of heaven is so interested in you and I serving Him in faith, serving Him with conviction and commitment. Today, if there's someone in this assembly... Who hasn't, do, who hasn't done that at this point at all in life? And you've reached a point of knowing wrong from right. You know that the Lord died for you at Calvary, and you know that sin will damn your soul. Aren't you thankful there's a way to have that sin forgiven? You must believe in Jesus, and do so with the thoroughness and fullness of your being. Romans 10, verses 13 and 14. Repent of the sins in your life. Turn aside from them, desiring to do them no more. Confess the great name of Christ Jesus as the Son of God and be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. Baptism is not an outward show of an inward grace. It is this tremendous moment of event in which this person reenacts the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Just as He was killed on the cross and His body was buried, so too that person who would wish to be a Christian, the old man of sin is buried in water, and then a new creature comes out of that water. Sin's now forgiven, member of the church, member of the body of Christ, and name now written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a great thing that's just happened. But certainly as that individual begins to live, there will be constant challenges, frustrations will arise, Temptations will take place. But it's still true that faithful till death, 
are the words of Revelation 2 verse 10. And so it could be that someone in this audience would wish to come back to the Lord today to make an acknowledgement of sins in life, to make repentance of them, and make a commitment to strive again to live differently and for the Lord. As often as the New Testament speaks about that, it too is a joyous moment. Isn't it true that Luke 15 says, the angels in heaven will rejoice at the return of a wayward person of God. Today, if we could be of some assistance in either of these ways, in ways of encouragement, we'd like to do that and do it now while together we stand and sing.